Hi, I'm Billy Shore. Welcome to Add Passion and Stir. It's the podcast from Share Our Strength and the No Kid Hungry campaign. We share the inspirational stories of individuals who set their sights on a problem and then use their strengths to create solutions. On today's episode, you'll hear from the visionary best-selling author, Francis Morlapay, creator of the revolutionary book, Diet for a Small Planet, and a woman I've admired my entire life. We'll be right back after this. Hi, I'm Billy Shore. Welcome back to Add Passion and Stir. It's the conversation we love to have about food, hunger, passion, and making a difference in the world. And our guest today, Francis Moore LePay, the author of 19 books, founder of Small Planet Institute, the Small Planet Fund. Uh, and I'm holding in my hand, and one of the reasons we were so uh, eager to have Francis Moore LePay on with us today, uh, and I'm here along with my sister, Debbie Shore, who co-hosts this podcast, is I'm holding the 50th anniversary edition of the groundbreaking Diet for a Small Planet. Uh, it's a book many of us, well, some of us at least, I'm 60, 60, 67 years old, so I grew up with it, uh, and it came out at a very formative time uh, in my life, and now we've got a special 50th anniversary edition. Um, Frances Morlapay says we can call her Frankie, so I'm going to say welcome, Frankie. I am just absolutely thrilled to have you here with me and my sister, Debbie. Thank you so much. I feel very welcome and I'm delighted. Frankie, you're, uh, I, I'm assuming that you're uh, kind of out talking about this book, which has been such a big part of your life for so long. Uh, it's pretty unusual uh, for a book to have a 50th anniversary edition. I just I just want to get a sense of like what that must feel like for you. <laughs> well, yeah, I, it took a while to sink in and I thought, oh, what books have I read in their 50th anniversary edition? I couldn't think of one. So, To, to Kill a Mockingbird is the only one that comes to mind. I think I've got that one. But, so you're, you're in pretty good company. Yeah. So it's, it's just a very, very special time, especially because my daughter, Anna LaPay, she and I traveled together and 2020, around the world, meeting the most uh, inspirational movement leaders on food and agriculture. And so uh, she's been very much part of my, you know, my development <laughs> to have my daughter working uh, so closely and learning with me. And so I want to say that this book really, really benefited from her work, uh, first of all, the cover, the beautiful cover, but also she oversaw the the modernization of my recipes, <laughs> brought them into the 21st century. Uh, she and the uh, recipe developer Wendy Lopez. So uh, it's it's been a family enterprise, shall we say? Well, I had the good fortune to watch your daughter Anna introduce you at an event that a wonderful bookstore did, called, a bookstore called Book Passage, uh, which was part of the launch for this. And uh, I could see that Anna uh, is going to be a, a force, uh, both as a great partner to you and in her own right. She has incredible energy and was just, uh, you know, very compelling as she she talked about this. Um, you know, say a little bit about that. There's so many things that we're eager to talk to you about, but. Um, one thing is, you know, how and why you wrote the book originally, uh, which I know you've talked about many times. But then I also am really eager to hear you compare the reception that it got then with the reception that it's getting now. Because, uh, you know, I feel like you were always ahead of your time and the times maybe now have almost caught up to you. I think you're still ahead of your time, but the times are at least catching up. So tell us a little bit about why you wrote it and then the difference between, you know, it coming out 50 years ago and it coming out again now. 
Well, I wrote it because I was lost. <laughs> I had been a warrior in the war on poverty and realized that that work I was doing as a community organizer really wasn't touching the very roots of the suffering that I saw so close to me. My closest friend in the welfare rights movement that I was working with died of a heart attack in her early 40s. And I was convinced that Lily died of poverty, not really a heart attack. And I wanted to know why, 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 why is there so much suffering and hunger? Is it really true, as Paul Ehrlich and others were saying, you know, that we'd hit the earth's limits and his book, The Population Bomb, uh, kind of exploded and people were saying, oh, I can't have children because it would be unethical because we've overrun the earth's capacity. And so I thought, oh, oh, maybe that's the avenue. Everybody has to eat. That's the most basic question. So if I could understand why is there hunger in the world, that that would open me to, to my life path. And that is really how it began. And I said, okay, is it true? And I went to the Berkeley Library, sat there with my dad's slide rule, if any of you know what that is, and put the numbers together. And then when I realized that there's more than enough food for all of us. When I realized that, then I said, that's great news. I wanted to tell the world that in fact, since we created hunger, we humans, when there's plenty of food, we can end hunger. And that to me was an extremely positive message. And you know, you're saying something that is so core to share our strengths messaging, which is that of all the issues that you and I care about uh, and that all of us care about, hunger is such a solvable problem. We don't have shortages of food in this country. We can get into that more, but I know Debbie wants to talk a little bit about your your kind of upbringing. Yeah, I was wondering, Frankie, you know, Billy and I grew up in a household in Pittsburgh where, you know, our parents were pretty politically active uh, in the 60s. And I'd like to think that they influenced, you know, some of our, uh, our, our interests and passion and founding of Share Our Strength. And I was just wondering if you had the same kind of influence from your folks growing up or what, you know, it, b before you even had this uh, kind of epiphany when, when your friend passed away and, and put you on the path to, to study hunger and poverty, was there something that came before that when you were growing up? Oh, I'm so glad you asked because I want to pay tribute to my amazing parents, my Parents taught me so much. They were uh, in Fort Worth, Texas, completely segregated, uh, completely racist culture, and they integrated our church that they co-founded. And they did many things along that line. But they also, they taught me to ask questions. They were learners. They were always asking the next question. And that, you know, when I talk to students, uh, I often say, find your question, find your question. And, and uh, that's what they encouraged me to do. And that's what they did in their lives. So um, I think we often don't take ourselves seriously enough that, that our own questions, maybe we can see what the experts can't. And I think what happened for me is that I came to the question, why hunger, without the 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 filter of being a developmental economist or a nutritionist. I just came with beginner's eyes. And I really believe that, therefore, I was able to ask that square one question without any without any prior assumption about the answer. Uh, that's so interesting because, you know, 
we don't know growing up what what those messages are that are you know really getting implanted in our brains and in our hearts and in our minds right it just you don't know and then you know it connects later on to something that you're interested in and and and, and it just guides you. So it's really, that's a whole different book. I love that. You know, Frankie, one of the things you write in the introduction to the 50th anniversary edition is that, um, you know, when you first wrote it, um, you know, kind of a plant-centered lifestyle and ethic was a choice, uh, not a necessity, but now it's become a necessity. And I think maybe this gets to the other part of the question I was asking a moment ago about how the book has been received differently, if it has been differently uh, now that 50 years have gone by. Say a little bit about, you know, what it was like when it first came out and how it feels now. Well, when it first came out, it was pretty much ignored for months. And then I, I did get to go uh, on, inter, you know, interviews and on talk shows. But the real breakthrough was, and he is now a friend, He, uh, Steve Kerwood was a very young reporter for the Boston Globe. And he wrote a review of the book and titled it Recipe for a Revolution. <laughs> so I said, oh, somebody got it. This is not just a change in diet, but it's a really a change in the whole way we think about economics, about a relationship to the earth, about one another, about what is essential to life, you know, all of that. So that that was the beginning to really feel that my message was getting across. Uh, on the other hand, the, the president of Tufts at the time said, what does she know? She's just a cookbook writer. So <laughs> uh, I was really glad for Steve Kerwood and he just inter interviewed me for the 50th anniversary edition for NPR, which was really, really nice. But and it, it's still revolutionary in a way, even 50 years later, don't you think? I think, yes, very much. But uh, the, the the breadth of the of the perspective has so grown, as you know, from the 50th anniversary edition, and anyone you know would would expect if they put put it together is that the the environmental crisis, the especially the, uh, the climate crisis, had not hit. Uh, we were becoming aware of the dangers of pesticides, and thank goodness, you know, I was my first husband was a a pathologist who really tuned me into the dangers of pesticides. So I got that really early. But uh, we had no idea of the impact of growing our food and processing our food uh, and the great overuse of resources by a grain-fed meat center diet. We, we didn't know the impact on climate crisis and just wider environmental decimation of species and on and on. So all the reasons for uh, this plant, and now I say plant and planet-centered diet, uh, have just swollen, you know, have just grown in our understanding, both the health, the, the, the health questions, the species protection, and uh, the efficiency and the environmental, you know, in terms of climate. All of that is, and I probably missed some big point there, but it's just all of the arguments for uh, this have just grown so much in 50 years. They have, and you know, I was thinking about something you just said a moment ago in terms of your advice to students is to find your question. And one of the questions uh, that I love that I've heard you pose, I saw it on a TED Talk that you did in 2010. There's a slide at the beginning that's a, that asks, why are we creating a world no one wants? <laughs> right. 
Uh, and I don't know if you remember talking about that, but I mean, it's, I feel like it's so core to the way you think about things, which is this is our response. This is our doing. Yes, I, that was the question that has shaped. I, I don't know the year that, that I got there, but that is the question that guides everything that I do. Why are we together creating a world that none of us as individuals would choose? Because as I say, nobody wakes up in the morning, yes, I want another child to die of hunger, or ooh, how can I heat the planet today? No one is doing that. And yet, that is what we're doing. And so that led me to ask, what is unique about our species? And one unique feature is the power of our magnificent brains which have offered us so much, but they also endanger because I think probably unlike other species, I can't imagine this working for them, but we see the world not as it is, but as we are. Uh, As Albert Einstein said, it is theory which decides what we can observe. So it's it's the theories in our head, the filters, the frames that define, you know, what we can see and what we cannot see. And so that is what I've really been focused on ever since, uh, you know, for years now, and try to um, try to frame it that way in the new 50th anniversary edition. Uh, just uh, this, you know, this belief in the infallible market, for example, is a frame um, that we don't, we still don't question. Um, and what would it mean to really? Um, I talk about going from scarcity mind to eco mind, ecological mind, going therefore from parts to participants. <laughs> that I, I love this parts to participants. It's Hans Peter Dürer, a German physicist, said that to me once at a party. He said, Frankie, in biological systems, there are no parts, there are only participants. And it just summed it all up that we have to think of all of all of life as participating with one another in order to make make decisions that enhance life for all because we're all connected and we're all affected uh, as we um, as we continue to destroy. And let me ask you before I go, just before I go back to my sister, um, and maybe the fact that you've written 19 books uh, answers this question, but uh, your writing is so compelling. Is, is writing hard for you? Does it come easily? Is it hard? <laughs> well, I confess I made a D on my first English paper in college. Oh, that's okay. You're giving hope to a lot of us. I know. I know. I always say that to students. I never imagined myself a writer. And when people ask me, well, how do I become a writer? And I said, you have to have something that you must share. You have no choice but to share it. And that will compel you to write. And maybe it will feel good after a while, but that's who I was. It wasn't that I thought I was a writer ever. I just had to share this message that started out as a one-page handout. <laughs> you had something very important to say. Frankie, um, I have a question, but before I ask it, I, I just wanted to comment on the title of your book because um, I love the small planet concept so much. It, you know, it share our strength. We, we've, in addition to one of our core beliefs that everybody has a strength to share, in, you know, in the fight to end hunger. We also believe in the power of all of us being connected uh, and and how people, I think, inherently want to be connected to something larger than themselves, which is a lot of what Share of Strength is about. And I feel like that's a lot of what your book is about. And I just, so I wanted to comment on the title, which I just love. Um, and my question is, you know, and it's, a, it's a big one, I realize. So, you know, um, there's just overwhelming evidence, you know, that you've been pointing out that our food choices 
you know, affect our health and our planet. So, and even more so in the last, you know, year, two years, I mean, just look at, um, you know, just look at everything around us and, and what's happening with our food choices. And I guess I'm just wondering, I mean, you're certainly doing your part in, in your writing and your speaking and your activism, but, but what has to happen to break through the noise, uh, not just in our country, but around the world and just starting with our country? I mean, who, who do we have to really influence at some point? And what are all the voices that we have to bring together to see some real change? Well, I think we have to feel deep indignation that uh, our, uh, what I call our tap root problem, and that is democracy. Who is heard? Democracy is about whose voices get heard. And the problem is that we, one problem is that our frame back to the filters that we look through, you know, we have assumed that we were a leading world democracy. And today we are not. We rank way down in, I think, Freedom House scores. We rank down 50 or 60. And uh, and world, there are two other uh, distinguished agencies that rate democracies, and we're way down. So I think that we have to come to grips with the fact that uh, democracy is not, <laughs> you know, is not just a set of institutional forms. It is a practice. And that our democracy, we've allowed to be infiltrated by private interests, both in everything from, you know, how, you know, who's heard in Washington. There are now over, over 20 lobbyists in Washington for every single person that we elect to represent us there. And a lot of those are from agribusiness. <laughs> we know, you know, the influence of England Food and Drug Administration, USDA, the of agriculture, the influence of corporations on those departments that that you know it's a revolve it's a you know what a fir- it's a part of the sort of revolving door where going out of government and back into government and out of government. I read once that maybe I included this too that Monsanto, for example, um, came in and out of the government agency that was supposed to be overseeing it. So um, that is a real problem because I think too many people think of democracy as just too big or either that we've got a great one, this is the best that the world can do because we're the best, and that it's too hard to change. But what is so encouraging to me now is that for the first time in my life, there is actually a democracy movement, a movement of people from all walks of life who are working on the goal of getting money out of the system of fair districting, because that's such a huge problem where where um, a partisan lines are drawn. So we have uh, citizens have less voice by those district lines being drawn in such a partisan way and also in voting rights. And I'm sure you're aware that we just failed to pass an important voting rights law, but we came very close and that battle is not dead. And so we have to understand that that's not a partisan question, that we all want to be heard. And um, so I'm, I'm, that's a big part of my life now. And uh, my Small Planet Institute co-sponsors a website with a very, very large organization that represents 45 other organizations with about 60 million people. And that website is just called democracymovement.us. And we have a map there, so whatever state you're in, you can go and you can see who's doing something and you can weigh in and offer support and and tell your friends. 
you know, when something like the John Lewis Voting Rights Act is is really up again to, you know, to call and to write to their legislators and make that happen, that that's not a separate political question. That is also a food and hunger question. I'm so glad to hear your encouraging words, Frankie, because, you know, and I agree with everything you've said about kind of the, the, the special interests um, and the role that they've played in our democracy. But, you know, to me, in some ways, um, it feels this particular moment in time feels even uh, more concerning for, for two reasons. One is the polarization, which you mentioned. And, you know, I think, you know, probably young people would grow up today thinking that it's uh, typical in the U.S. Senate or in Congress for all votes to be party line votes. That's that's a new phenomenon. This notion of, you know, all 50 Republicans voting one way and all 50 Democrats, or at least 48 of them now, the Senator's Mansion and Cinema voting the other way. Uh, historically, that is not the way most of our history has been. You know, there, there have all, there's always been politics, there's always been partisanship, but there had also always been a lot of members of Congress thinking for themselves and not just, you know, kind of blindly obedient and loyal to uh, what their party leadership tells them to do. And then, of course, there's also this, you know, to me, one of the biggest concerns about democracy right now is the notion that um, we, we live in almost parallel universes in terms of the, the, the what we agree are facts, right? Whether they're facts as they apply to the vaccine and the pandemic or facts as they apply to climate change. And, you know, I'll tell you, I'll tell you Frankie, I was with uh, listening in on a conversation between uh, two men who I know not well, but uh, a little bit uh, in my in my neighborhood, and uh, their 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 politics are different than mine, but they're also very good people and they're very good neighbors. Uh, but I heard one say to the other, and you'll you'll know in a minute how different their politics were from mine. Uh, and he said it very earnestly. He said, "You know," he said, uh, "Trump didn't get everything right, but at least he never lied." Right. And so, I mean, for me, I, you know, I really almost fell out of my seat, but it was also a, you know, a kind of a shout out for me that we are really living in some in parallel universes. I guess if you're a, you know, a, to, for lack of a, you know, for a, a better, more sophisticated uh, analysis, if you're a Fox News consumer versus an MSNBC news consumer, you have just kind of a completely different world reality. And, uh, and, and that worries me for our democracy. I, I don't know how you've thought about that particular fact. Oh, yes, a lot. I have a fairly new blog about it with polarization in the title. And I think, and, and someone in my family is will, will not speak to me at all about politics now. And my last book about democracy, he's called me a totalitarian. So we uh, can't, he won't uh, ask the, these questions with me. But, but stepping back from that personal pain, um, that I really think that we shouldn't that we who want more democracy could, in certain circumstances, uh, if we can get into a conversation, agree, uh, find agreement that I, I bet there are not many people who are Trump supporters who would say, oh, yes, I want a few big companies to control the market in all these different ways and give me very few choices. Um, you know, that, that I think... I think most Americans would share a lot of the deepest concerns that you and I would have about rep fair representation and a market that is not monopoly controlled. Um, so I do think there's grounds for, uh, for conversation if we can 
make it and we can enable it. And also, I also wrote, and we have something um, that we're developing as a little backgrounder that we will publish on our website about how it's called Truth Be Told, how uh, do how can a democracy protect itself against lies? And I have a blog by that name, Truth Be Told. And uh, it was very uh, challenging to research, but there are some other countries who are stepping up and experimenting with ways in totally transparent ways to to um, to call out uh, deliberate misconstruction and that, that is harmful, lies that are harmful. So uh, I, I do think that there's a way for a democracy to move forward on that, uh, to call for greater transparency. And, and so I want to uh, steer people back to your your blog. This sounds so important. Truth Be Told is the way to, if you Google Truth Be Told, you'll get to your blog. Uh-huh. Terrific. Okay. And before I turn back to, to Debbie, uh, I'll just, you know, temper my somewhat discouraging comments with, you know, a more opti- optimistic note that I think is parallel to what you were saying as you were talking about coming close on the Voting Rights Act and so forth. And I'm thinking of something that uh, President Obama said uh, just a few months ago at a climate change conference. And he was saying that I, I guarantee you every victory will be incomplete. We'll face more s- setbacks, but sometimes that's how you move the ball down the field. And he also urged the activists to, to that, it, that it was, I think he said, it's not enough to simply mobilize the converted or preach to the choir. We have to be willing to reach out to those who disagree with us and try to persuade them, whether they either agree or don't care to persuade them that they need to be active on these issues. So, um, but that notion that every victory is incomplete based on my 35, 40 years in Washington is absolutely true. And it should not be discouraging. It should be encouraging because it is how you move the ball forward. Uh, Deb, let me, let me get back to you. Oh yeah. Well, I was just switching gears a little bit, Frankie, um, to talk a little bit about chefs and their role in this work. You know, we work with thousands of chefs um, and, you know, I'm, I'm sure you've given this some thought, but just wondering what, what kind of role chefs can play in, in food choices and, and recipe development um, and and all the things that, that we know are just healthier in general. Yeah, well, I have to shout out for my daughter who said, Mom, we, we really need to get top chefs to contribute recipes in the, your new book, you know, on the 50th anniversary. And she achieved that. And, and I was just so touched and proud to include, I believe there are about 14 or so, uh, recipes that weren't in the original. And by the way, all the recipes, as I said earlier, have been updated and spruced up. So, um, yeah, I just am so touched. And I think the more that these wonderful chefs can articulate, uh, the, all the positives of it's, it's not a scold. It's not a, you should, uh, it, but it's this wonderful taste adventure and health adventure and health adventure. I know in my own life, I felt so much better uh, when I moved away from meat diet. And I wasn't expecting that, you know, I wasn't expecting to feel worse. But I wasn't expecting I was the classic female weight watcher kind of person who was always on the scales and trying to lose that last 10 pounds. And then when I moved to a plant centered diet, my body just came into balance. And my taste started be drawn, being drawn to 
the healthiest things. Uh, that sounds like that sounds like a familiar story. <laughs> uh, as as uh, we've only got a few minutes left, but uh, you know, just given all of our work and hunger and your long history uh, as a as a champion of the idea that we can actually end hunger uh, on our planet, uh, I was just going to ask you to say a little bit more, go a little bit deeper on on the hunger issue and some of the things that you think all of us can be doing to help solve that problem. Thank you. Yes. By the way, Anna and I wrote a blog called uh, Hunger is Over If We Want It. And um, at the time of that summit on the food supply. And I, um, I just want to underscore that the tragedy is that here we are with, you know, uh, uh, maybe a quarter more calories per person than we had uh, when I first wrote my book. Uh, we still have one in three people who lack sufficient, lack adequate diet, one in three. And, um, and the tragedy, in addition to the calorie question, as you know, <laughs> I'm sure, is that uh, the degradation of our food supply, and I emphasize this in the new opening chapter, that 60, in the U.S., 60% of our calories are now empty calories. And it's that processed diet that is being pushed throughout the global south. And one can understand, you know, because you can buy small packages of things that maybe you could afford if you have a little bit of money, and they're the worst things that we could get hooked on. And when Anna and I drove in rural uh, India, a couple decades ago to write our book, Hope's Edge, we, we went through a stand of eucalyptus trees and on every trunk was a huge painted Pepsi sign. <laughs> and of course, India has a long tradition of nutritious, delicious fruit drinks that people cooled off with, you know, and now that's being replaced with this totally devastating um, uh, sugar drink. And so the, the problem of this highly processed and increasingly meat-centered uh, is now global. And um, so we have to address it as, as that. And um, also, you know, what I didn't put just in terms of what I've learned since the book, I was appalled that I didn't know when I wrote the 50th anniversary edition. And I'm curious if you have heard this, that the WHO in 2015 declared uh, red meat a probable carcinogen and uh, beef a, a carcinogen or excuse me processed processed meat a carcinogen and uh, when I was being interviewed by a radio program they didn't believe me and they fact-checked me in real time and went to the WHO website because what why didn't I know that you know and that's how I felt so you know, that, that there's just so much of the pushing of the processed diet and it's deliberately designed to get us hooked, as we now know. Uh, it's deliberately designed to be addictive. And so the more that, you know, we can celebrate um, and make available, I mean, the tragedy is that, you know, in so many communities, it's hard to get these delicious whole foods that that are the staples in my diet, you know, and and... So all that we can do to address poverty and to um, and to make sure that that healthy foods are available are are affordable in every way that we can fight poverty as well as increase the actual um, availability. 
we don't think as much as you do in terms of small planet, but one of the ways we think of uh, when we think of the word small is something that um, has really guided us. Uh, and it's something the writer Jonathan Kozel once said, which is to pick battles that are big enough to matter, but small enough to win. Um, and, you know, and I, I think there are many of those, you know, and in terms of talking about like what each of us, as you're just doing, can do as individuals, um, you know, we can find battles that are small enough to win, but that can have a big impact that they can, they can really matter. Uh, yeah, before we uh, finish, you should tell Frankie what we're doing in India. Yeah, Frankie, we, um, you know, our, our mission has been broadly uh, stated as ending hunger and poverty in the United States and around the world. And we've, you know, been investing the majority of our, our funds and resources domestically for a lot of years, but we've always kept a, a small footprint internationally. Now, um, over the last couple of years, we started to think about where we can go deeper with the work of No Kid Hungry. And for a whole bunch of reasons, we've selected India, um, where we have been making some large contributions over the last couple of years to a, an organization called Akshaya Patra, which is a um, very large and effective school meals delivery program across the country. Uh, but w- what we're thinking about now, and we've hired a, um, a, a fellow from India who works for Share of Strength to run this uh, and to kind of go back and forth and to learn where we could best play. But the, the idea is that in addition to grant making, which we'll continue to do, um, what part of our model of revenue generation, of advocacy, of brand building and development could be exported to the folks on the ground who are interested in learning more and all with the intention of increasing resources for existing programs in India. So that's work that we're just embarking on. Super excited about it. Um, you know, hope that I get to India, uh, plan to, we went last year, but I couldn't go. So, uh, that's just a big part of our future and I'm excited about it. Wonderful. Um, a life-changing experience for me, I relate to, I relate in the new opening chapter and it was in Andhra Pradesh in Deccan Development Society there. Uh, these are Dali, the lowest caste, uh, community of, and these were women who took leadership role after they told me they felt they had no power, no respect from anyone. And they came together and over the last 30 years have transformed uh, at least 75 communities into no hunger. There is no hunger in our village, they told me, uh, through, uh, through um, organic practices of multi-cropping. In, even in small fields, they, they grow a variety of healthy foods. But I think of it because they told me that um, their food is now, their, their healthier brown rice is being used in some of the schools rather than the white rice that is so uh, lacking in nutrition. And I was just thrilled, you know, that these women started out as the most disempowered and now um, have in, in dozens of villages have moved this forward and actually are part of the the school food system. Incredible. Uh, well, the Frankie that we have been talking to is none other than Francis Moore LePay, um, author, of course, of Diet for a Small Planet, now out in its 50th anniversary edition, as well as uh, at least a dozen and a half other books. Uh, Frankie, I have to tell you, it's really such an honor to talk to you. You've been an inspiration for a long, long time, and uh, you've just... Uh, you know, I wrote a book, Frankie, called uh, The Cathedral Within, using cathedral building as a metaphor for working on something your whole life, because, you know, the cathedral built, the cathedrals took hundreds of years to build, working on something your whole life, even if you don't get to see it uh, finished uh, or in its completion, and how that doesn't detract from your dedication or craftsmanship, but actually 
adds to it being part of something larger than yourself. And you are uh, you are a world class cathedral builder. You've just devoted your life to uh, advancing this conversation about how we save our planet and how we uh, how we you know make sure that all of us. Uh, who live in it uh, have lives of uh, dignity and are able to thrive. And uh, you hear this everywhere you go, I know, but uh, I, I can't thank you enough for your leadership. It's meant a lot to all of us. Oh, you're very kind. Thank you. I just have loved talking to you. Frankie, I, mean, I, I can't say it better than Billy. This has really been an inspiring and uplifting uh, conversation. So thank you so much for the time. Can I say one more thing? In this world of connection, where there are no parts, only participants, the only choice we don't have is whether to change the world, because every act we take and don't take has effect. And certainly food is, connects us to each other, the earth, and all its creatures. So let's just take that power and run with it. Thanks for listening to Add Passion and Stir. If you want to learn more about Francis Moore LaPay and hear other compelling episodes about the intersection of food and the environment, please visit adpassionandstir.com. Please follow us wherever you get your podcasts, share it with a friend, or rate the show so that others can find it. Add Passion and Stir is produced by Paul Woodle's team at District Productive and Joanna Weber of Pop and Awe, with support from our team at Share Our Strength and the No Kid Hungry campaign. Debbie Shore, Pamela Taylor, Megan Cantrell, and Kelly Griffin. We'll be back in two weeks with more stories of individuals sharing their strength to make a difference in the world.